0: Hello and welcome to Prevent Resist Support. Prevent Resist Support is a podcast created by the Sexual Misconduct Response and Prevention Office at the University of Windsor through the Sexual Wellness and Consent Committee. I'm Anne, and I'll be your host for our podcast today. We're trying something new here with our first episode, so please bear with us. In today's episode, we're going to be talking about some of the key folks here at University of Windsor in terms of our sexual violence prevention and response. So we're gonna talk about addressing sexual violence on a campus-wide scale, and we'll tell you a little bit about what we offer on our campus. In the coming weeks, we'll be inviting campus partners and community members to talk with us about sexual violence, consent, and well-being. So why a podcast? 2020 was a really strange time for sexual violence prevention and for public education, especially at a university. We thought, you know, is this gonna work? What is gonna work? We don't know. We threw a lot of stuff out there to kind of experiment with it, and what we've noticed is that students aren't engaging with workshops in the same way as before COVID-19. When students were on campus, it was a different game. Now we've noticed that some of the highest engagement that we have is with our Facebook Live sessions, because students can watch them whenever they want to. I think that that's what works right now, the flexibility of timing to engage in this stuff when you're ready to and when you have time for it. I don't think that there are many podcasts on sexual violence prevention right now, so we've seen a few podcasts on survivorship, the experiences of sexual assault, and healing from trauma. However, I hope we're bringing something a little bit new to the table here with our focus on campus-based prevention. So what can you expect here from us? We're going to be talking about sexual violence prevention, resistance, and support. We're also going to talk about sexual consent, sexual wellness, sex education, and more. And we're going to feature experts in the field who are doing this work right now. So you'll get to hear from a bunch of different folks working at different universities, in research, um, and in other fields about the things that are currently happening. So for today's episode, we're focused focusing on um, folks from our team here at the University of Windsor. So I'm Anne, I'm the Sexual Wellness and Consent Coordinator at the Sexual Misconduct Office. I work with Dusty on our educational pieces of our work. So our social media, our workshops, and now this podcast. I also help to run Flip the Script, which is a rape resistance program. We are not running it this semester, but we're hoping to get back to it as soon as possible, as soon as it's safe to return to campus. So I wanna introduce you to the other two women that I work most closely with at the university. Dr. Justy Johnstone is the Sexual Misconduct Response and Prevention Officer. So she does all of the support pieces on our campus. She has a PhD in applied social psychology and has a strong background in research. She also worked with the Bystander Initiative for a while um, and has been running our office since about 2016, I believe. Justy is so kind and lovely and I'm really excited for you to hear from her today about the work that she does. We also have Dr. Frankie Cachone joining us today from the Bystander Initiative. Frankie is currently running the Bystander Initiative on campus and also teaches in the Women's and Gender Studies department at the University of Windsor. Frankie is so fun and wonderful, um, and I'm really excited for you to hear from her as well today. Before we get started, I just wanna highlight that if you need support in terms of sexual violence or misconduct or anything surrounding sexual wellness, you can reach out to our office at svsupport at uwindsor.ca. Okay, so let's talk about our team here at U Windsor. So I know I've given some qualifications for the folks on our team, uh, but I wanna give them a chance to introduce themselves and maybe tell us a little bit about their COVID hobbies. So over here, I've been learning to quilt and make pies, and so it's very cottage core in my home right now. Dusty, what are you up to during COVID?
1: Well, I'm, you know, trying to find time alone by myself, um, which is like something a lot of people with covid, you know, are actually like I've got too much time by myself, but I've got a one and a half year old. And so like I'm just, you know, spending covid trying to hide from him sometimes and you know be quiet. <laughs> um, and I'm I'm reading a lot more, which has actually been lovely, and I also kind of feel like, you know, I'm practicing ennui, almost like it's a meditative pursuit. <laughs>
0: Oh my gosh. That's hilarious. Uh,
2: Frankie, what are you up to? Well, Epsom salt baths and podcasts are my retreat. I love that. And long walks, those with my dog. Those are definitely my go-tos for some self-care.
0: It is definitely like the best time to have a dog right now.
2: Yeah, she's, I have two, (laughs) it's terrible to admit my, my partner has the little white dog and the big brown dog's mine. (laughs) So I I walk the big, the little guy, he doesn't really want to go for a walk anyway.
0: (laughs) That is amazing. I'm so excited to be here with you both chatting about sexual violence campus, or sexual violence prevention on campuses today. Uh, So our first question is, why are we giving our attention to sexual violence on campus? Dusty, do you want to take this one?
1: Sure. So sexual violence has been on the radar for researchers and activists for like decades now. Like we're talking more than 30 years. Um, Folks have been working on this topic. But it's only really kind of come to like a broad sort of cultural awareness in the last few years, I would say um, between 2014 and 2017, when Me Too happened, um, there was a significant kind of change in awareness. And now people are really recognizing this is a problem that affects so many people on college campuses. And so, um, you know, we are just trying to contribute to the public conversation and continue the work that we've already been doing for a decade at the University of Windsor, um, you know, and expanding it as much as we can
0: absolutely and then i guess one of the questions is you know the rates are really high on campuses for sexual violence so why is that
1: right so there's probably a number of different variables that factor into this but one of them is that the age at which many people you know are in college or university falls into what we consider to kind of be like the red zone in terms of people's developmental lifespan. So between the ages of 14 and 24, that is when people are both most likely to um, experience sexual violence and also to perpetrate it. So that is in of itself a really big factor. And if we look beyond colleges and universities, this is also happening at very high rates within that age group, generally speaking. But on college campuses, there's other variables that can contribute to it as well. For example, um, you're in a new place, you're meeting new people, you don't have the same established relationships with folks, you don't know them particularly well. So people might be meeting new folks, hooking up with new people and are in situations that are new and potentially riskier just because they don't quite have their social bearings yet. And another factor too is alcohol. Um, You know, sometimes there's an increase in the amount of alcohol that people start consuming around this point in their life. And again, alcohol increases um, risks for um, both victimization and perpetration. So that's not an exhaustive list, but those are a couple of the factors that contribute to sexual violence being something that is happening during the life stage of people who are in college and university. And, you know, that's why we need to be giving our thought to it.
0: Thank you so much for that.
1: Um, I think it's just a really complicated problem
0: and it's happening in a broad community. And so I guess one of the important questions for us to tackle today is how do you address sexual violence on a large scale like at a university? Frankie, did you wanna weigh in on that?
2: Sure, absolutely. So I think the very first thing we need to talk about is acknowledging the issue. Uh, We know that despite more broad-based public conversation, sexual violence remains a socially taboo subject. We are ill-equipped as a society uh, in many cases to talk about and to adequately uh, address sexual violence because there are so many misconceptions and misperceptions about sexual violence. And in our work, we we often emphasize that you can't change what you don't acknowledge. So the very first thing that is important is for us to acknowledge that sexual violence is in fact an issue on university uh, campuses and to have a level of open dialogue about that and to empower community stakeholders to have that conversation, to to have the skills to be open and honest about that and to demonstrate how we are proactive proactively dealing with the problem.
0: Awesome, Um, and then I know one of the things that we do on campus is we actually use a very specific framework to think about sexual violence. So Dusty, can you take a minute to run us through that framework?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So one of the things that we think is really important is understanding, you know, sexual violence in context. So it's not just this thing that randomly occurs between two people because one person happens to be a bad person. You know, violence in any form um, exists within a particular social context and the cultural norms as well as the, um, you know, structures of power influence how these direct incidents of violence occur so we kind of think of it as representing a triangle where direct incidents of violence are is you know is one point on the triangle and then the other two points on the triangle are cultural forms of violence that represent our social norms um, and widely held like beliefs attitudes and behaviors that are shared in our culture and then The third point is the structural piece, which is like I said, systems of oppression that can be based around um, gender and race and class and so forth um, that manifest in the way our institutions exist in the way they, the policies that we use and so forth. And so those cultural and structural pieces are always influencing the direct acts of violence. And so we think it's really important that when we're doing work to prevent sexual violence and to respond to it, that we are always thinking about that broader context. Because if we don't, we're going to miss the big picture and we're not ever going to get to the root of the problem. So we're always trying to um, you know, come up with responses that are tapping broadly into the bigger underlying issues. Um, so I think if, if we might, like Frankie is in a really good position to talk about the the cultural aspects of violence and the way that manifests, because that's where she puts a lot of her time and
2: effort. Absolutely. So, you know, it is really interesting when you think about um, sexual violence in this way, as I was saying before, there's so many misperceptions, mis- misconceptions, myths that inform the, the way people think about sexual violence. And for example, on university campuses, the tendency was to not talk about it. We, uh, we won't acknowledge it, we won't talk about the issue because we don't want parents or students to be afraid. And the reality is we need to talk about it and we also need to challenge those misconceptions. So traditionally a lot of violence prevention focused on risk management for women, focusing on um, women as potential victims and men as potential perpetrators. And what we wanna do is is really get at that larger cultural context that produces sexual violence. What are the cultural contexts in which sexual violence happens? And as Dusty was saying, we know that environments where there is a, a lot of consumption of alcohol can contribute to the perpetration of sexual violence and risk for sexual violence. And so in the past, you know, we might think about uh, a fear of walking late at night and a fear of stranger danger. And those are two good illustrations that speak to the lack of, of knowledge that we have about sexual violence, because the reality is we are far more likely to experience sexual violence by someone we know, someone we trust, and perhaps even love are far more likely to experience sexual violence in our dorms and in our apartments than we are on the streets or in a a dark parking lot. So those are two good illustrations that speak to the necessity of having open dialogue to educate people about sexual violence. And also thinking about the cultural context uh, where, for example, we may say uh, it is unfortunate, but these these conceptions still happen that it's what someone was wearing or how much someone had to drink. Um, being sexually assaulted is not a logical consequence of, of being drunk. And so we need to really challenge those misperceptions and create long-term uh, cultural shifts in those ideas that do in fact support what we call rape supportive attitudes. Those need to be challenged. And that's where a lot of our work is focused on unlearning those myths.
0: Yeah, and I think when you're talking about like rape supportive attitudes, we're kind of getting at the idea of rape culture. So could you give us a definition of that?
2: Um, I think the best way to talk about that is rape culture is um, when we think of rape as something that's pervasive and normative in our culture. That it's it's something that we ex- we come to accept, and um, also we know that victim blaming is a large part of rape culture. So when people say things like, "Well, what did she expect? She went to his apartment," or "What did they expect? They were wasted," those are um, examples of myths that that or victim blaming that uh, perpetuate this normalization of the prevalence of sexual violence, as opposed to understanding that this is an act of violence that is perpetrated and should be seen of as violence or thought of as violence.
0: I would love to also talk a little bit about the structural piece because I think we also do a lot of really cool advocacy on the structural level, so Dusty, did you want to talk about that piece?
1: Sure. When we're talking about the structural violence, again, we're looking at the institutions, social institutions and the way that they, um, reinforce systems of power and oppression and how that relates to sexual violence. So for one thing, you know, within our institution, we wrote a standalone sexual violence policy, and that was the mandate of the provincial government several years ago. Prior to that point, it was uncommon for universities to have policies that specifically address sexual violence. And so that has been a positive change that we have undertaken, which really gives us guidelines for how we respond. And, um, thoughtfully and in a trauma-informed way to instances of sexual violence. That said, you know, writing a policy is a good start, but that's hardly the end of the work. So there's a lot that we need to continue to do to think about and to refine that process and also importantly to really advocate um, for how it is applied in practice. So it's one thing to have a good policy on paper, but in order to translate that into practice that serves the needs of survivors in a day-to-day way, that takes so much you know, effort um, because it requires a lot of behavior modification and a lot of challenging assumptions that people have historically had about how you handle incidents of sexual misconduct. So that's a very specific example um, within the university. But when we're thinking about structural violence, like I also encourage people to think about institutions like the criminal justice system The way that it functions and how it often does an incredible disservice to the needs of survivors. Uh, So we also are contemplating, you know, institutions like that as well. So we're trying to change the things that we can within our own institution, but also trying to figure out how do we support survivors who are also navigating these other institutions. Um, And then the final point on our triangle was really about the direct incidence of violence. So, you know, while we are trying to also do the higher level work, like we are trying to prevent sexual violence by challenging the social norms, by engaging more people in uh, caring about this issue, we're trying to advocate for better policies and practices. The reality is there are still students on our campus who have already experienced sexual assault, who will experience sexual assault while they are here. And so we do still need to be really responding sensitively and immediately to those concerns as well. And that's the role that um, our sexual misconduct office plays. Uh, We are a place for people who've been harmed by sexual violence to come for support, whatever that might look like. Sometimes it's really just listening, but often it's problem solving as well, or figuring out you know, what other things are going on in your life that we can potentially help with. And you know, being a place as well to offer a compassionate perspective um, to really mitigate the feelings of self-blame that people have. We really want to make sure people understand that whatever has happened, it's not their fault.
0: I think when I think about this problem, um, I love that we have such a thoughtful way of approaching it, but I also always have this sense that there are just so many pieces to the puzzle. And I know that social change can be really slow. When we're trying to change these social norms, I think sometimes we're thinking about like a really long-term strategy because it does take a while. And I think for a lot of folks that can be really like frustrating because they want these changes to happen really quickly. So could you speak to that a little bit?
1: Yeah. So social change is slow (laughs) and, and that is hard. Um, I think the social problem I find it most useful to compare is, um, drinking and driving, you know, 45 years ago, drinking and driving was, or drunk driving, however you want to call whatever you want to call it, was so pervasive. And it was a huge social problem led to so much unnecessary death. And within the matter of like 10 to 20 years, significant progress had been made on that social issue. Now it continues to be a problem. um, And it's one that requires, you know, still like active um, education, but there are ride programs in place. There's so many public um, health initiatives that now respond to that problem. And it's gotten to a point where most people have this just general understanding of like, this just isn't a thing that you do. And if you see that your friend has had too much to drink, um, you know, you don't really think much of like, Oh, Hey, let me give you a ride home. Or, you know what? I don't think you should drive tonight. Why don't you stay over? Like we are, more adept at problem solving situations now where people have been drinking and potentially will drive than we were 40 years ago. 40 years ago, people would have been like, ah, you know, if I, if I say something to them, I'm really kind of like questioning their judgment and who they are as a person. Now we're a lot more comfortable with that. I think that similarly, we're dealing with, um, you know, a social problem that's on the same kind of scope where People need to get really comfortable becoming involved with it. And that will take time, but I don't think it necessarily has to take centuries. (laughs) You know, I think that we're starting to, at least I hope, reach a bit of a critical mass, you know, where you, enough people are understanding the issue and are aware of it that you start to see some shift culturally. And certainly the number of people who are talking about this issue now who are, you know, have some understanding of it has changed a lot just in that I've been doing this work, which is about, you know, 10, 10 years. So I see progress already. I try to hold on to the hope of that. Um, and, you know, also in my own life, do the day to day work that allows me to see incremental, small, positive change. I find that's an important part for me as well in terms of maintaining hope in terms of the the trajectory of this problem.
0: I love that. Maintaining hope is so important. I think that's definitely a piece of it that we need to be thinking about. Uh, Frankie, what are your thoughts?
2: Yeah, so that idea, of, again, returning to this concept of rape rape culture, uh, rape culture helps us understand the pervasiveness of sexual violence, the way it's normalized, and the social attitudes about gender and sexuality that contribute to the perpetration of sexual violence. So it's that unlearning piece, that incremental unlearning that is so important. And so in our workshops, for example, we often say if someone walks in at a zero and we can bring them to a two. So for example, um, they may have normalized the belief that if a woman is dressed in a provocative way, in a revealing way, she was quote unquote asking for asking for it to be raped um, that's progress if if they're able to problematize that and see that that's not acceptable sometimes people will come in and they're like no obviously a way someone dresses is not um, to be blamed for they they can't be blamed for their assault but perhaps they have attitudes about drinking. If they were excessively drinking, then, oh, well, what what did they expect? And we could move them to a four. So again, that incremental piece is so important. We're not going to get everyone from a zero to 10, but we can begin to unlearn. Um, this, the ways in which we've all been socialized around sexual violence to uh, normalize these attitudes that do in fact blame victims for their assault. The only person that is responsible here is the perpetrator, but also we want to analyze the cultural context in which sexual violence is normalized. So an example I can think of is, you know, in a party culture, uh, young people could say something like, oh, a drunk girl is a hot girl right? This normalization of the use of alcohol to facilitate assault. So those are the types of things that we see in our social attitudes that when challenged, when unlearned, we can begin to create a culture where we have zero tolerance of all forms of sexual violence. And of course, that takes time um, because we've all been socialized to think about sexual violence in this, in this way, it's, it's pervasive, that's part, part of our culture. Um, I like to say that culture is to humans like water is to fish, it seems kind of invisible to us, we're not unaware of its impact on us. Um, but when we develop those skills to look at it critically, and to analyze the impact of those beliefs, then we begin to feel empowered to challenge that culture.
0: I love that. Thank you so much for walking us through that and sharing your thoughts. So I think one of the really cool things that we do on campus is we take this really purposeful structure of the direct the cultural and the structural and we've translated it into this framework for how we're addressing sexual violence on campus that I think is really cool. Um, Frankie, do you want to walk us through the prevent resist support framework.
2: Yeah, so um, as I was saying before, traditionally, we we talked about prevention on campus by responsabilizing women and thinking about like, don't go out at night by yourself, don't drink too much, um, don't talk to strangers, that kind of idea. But our focus with bystander intervention in terms of prevention is to create a culture where everyone on our campus sees sexual violence as their issue. That they need to take personal and social responsibility for the prevention of sexual violence. Um, And again, traditionally sexual violence is thought of as a woman's issue. So already changing that perspective and saying that every single person on our campus has a role to play in being pro-social and to prevent sexual violence. And pro-social meaning that they they are going to look out for one another, that we live and function in a campus community where we look out for one another, And we all take responsibility for making sure we have a respectful campus for everyone. So I think that's really important in terms of thinking about the issue um, and and getting that broad based kind of stakeholder idea that everyone is a stakeholder in this issue. Uh, And then from there really thinking through the strategies that can be developed for people to intervene at all levels before, during and after um, a sexual assault and here it's important for us to also emphasize that most of our work in terms of bystander intervention is not with direct violence. Um, we may have opportunities to intervene in a high risk situation. So maybe a person being highly intoxicated and led out of a party. That could be an example of of a time where we would see violence potentially happening. But the reality is most of our work is at the cultural level that Dusty was talking about. When we interrupt um, jokes that demean women or objectify women and and talk about women as sexual conquest or the use of alcohol to facilitate uh, a sexual experience. Um, Or victim blaming, shutting that down to say, no, that's not right, it's not what she was wearing, Um, it doesn't matter that she was flirting, she didn't invite an assault in her life. Uh, I think that's really important as well. So this prevention piece is really about building the campus community's capacity to prevent on all levels. And I guess the last level there is um, how how to support a survivor. We know that most survivors will disclose to their friends, to their peers, And we want to be able to offer support that's effective that will not victim blame that will validate and give survivors the support they need to facilitate their healing journey that's
0: awesome so i think you've told us a bit about our prevent piece dusty do you want to cover resist and
1: support Uh, sure i'm happy to talk about this a little bit um so again when we were thinking about you know the prevent resist support framework we were influenced by a public health model in a a way where ideally you prevent an illness um, from happening. So like before you get ahead of it, you stop it from happening before it occurs. Um, In situations where you can't necessarily prevent it or it hasn't been prevented, you see that it's happening and you intervene to try to prevent it from getting worse. And then In some situations, like, you know, an illness has already run its course. And so what are the things that you can do to mitigate its long-term impact after the fact? And that's sort of the, you know, a conceptual model that we're working with as well. So what Frankie was speaking to, like, our first goal is prevent sexual violence, you know, out of the gate. Like, we don't want it to happen at all. Um, But that's a long-term goal. In the, you know, as we, as we are all like working to facilitate that particular social change and, you know, contribute to widespread prevention, the reality is that there are going to be situations where people are going to still choose to act in harmful ways towards someone else. They're going to initiate violence against someone else. And so we believe that in those situations, um, that the people who are being targeted, women primarily have the right to resist and fight back. Um, And that they should be given the tools to do that. And I'm actually going to turn this back to you, Anne, because this is the part of our work that you put so much of your heart into. And I really think that you're actually in the best position to speak to it. So why don't you tell us about the resist part of our framework?
0: Okay. I love that. Um, I do love flip the script. It's my fave. I think it's one of the hardest pieces for us to talk about actually, because we have a really strong narrative of, you know, let's put the responsibility on the perpetrator and teach men not to rape rather than teaching women how to resist. And I think that comes from all the really bad advice that women get about how to resist the like, Don't park next to a big van and carry your keys when you walk alone at night, which might be effective for preventing a certain type of violence, which is, you know, kind of centered around strangers, but isn't really effective for the type of violence that's the most common, which is acquaintances. Um, So I think it's hard to talk about because I think when we talk about resistance, it sounds like we're saying that women need to be responsible for protecting themselves. Um, But at the same time, we just don't have any programs that effectively teach perpetrators to stop perpetrating. There's been a bunch of research on it. It's just not effective. Um, And I think, you know, if we have the tools to empower women to trust their gut and leave a situation when they feel uncomfortable or to even fight back if they need to, I think that women should have those tools and that we should not keep those from them. Um, So I love Flip the Script. I think it's super important. I also think, uh, you know, it's really easy to look at a program at face value and assume, you know, what's in the content, but I think the program itself is just so anti-victim blaming and places the responsibility so squarely on perpetrators, um, and is really about, like I said, you know, trusting your gut and empowering folks, um, you know, to, to do what they need to do. And, and, you know, it's really empowering for young women. And so I really love flip the script. I can't wait for us to get back to that program in the future. And Dusty, did you want to kind of close this section off with the
1: support piece? Sure. Um, So, yeah, again, sometimes incidents occur. Um, that we've not been able to prevent, that you know, it was impossible to resist. And so harm has been caused and people deserve to be supported after the fact. And so we do that directly through the sexual misconduct office. I offer one-on-one support to anyone in our community who's been harmed, but we're also trying to build the capacity of our community um, through a survivors and supporters group Um, That really focuses on just building a social community for people who've been harmed um, or the people who support them, as well as expanding the uh, disclosure training that we offer so that um, more people in our community feel prepared to respond should someone disclose to them. So these are the other ways that we are building out support. So we've tried to develop educational programming at each level, prevent, resist, support. Um, in order to, again, address this as comprehensively as possible.
0: Amazing. And then I know our work has changed a lot during the COVID-19 pandemic. Um, Frankie, can you share with us a little bit about how things have changed?
2: Sure. And... I guess even before uh, talking about that in depth, one of the things that the global pandemic has provided is a really good uh, illustration for the ways in which we can think about bystander pro-social behavior in this context of a public health framework. So we know that for example, mask wearing can significantly reduce transmission and we know that social distancing again is is another piece that we all have a role to play in contributing to the prevention of the spread of COVID-19. This is exactly what we mean by thinking about pro-social bystanders, right? That we all have a role to play. We need to do our part to create a a larger context where we're mitigating the risk of, of this harm, So I think that's interesting to think about, you know, the same parallels wearing a mask is a pro social behavior. And that's why we want uh, our students, our faculty, our staff to think about Um, their role in terms of sexual violence, that they have a role to play and they have a contribution to make. When we think about um, sexual violence in the context of this pandemic, we have to remember that sexual violence is a form of gender-based violence and that rates of all forms of gender-based violence have increased, so much so that it's being called the pandemic within the pandemic. Uh, We're seeing increased rates of uh, service provision, um, women's shelters, uh, sexual assault crisis centers reporting increased uh, demand for their services. So I think it's important for us to uh, recognize that this is a a growing social issue. And again, that this isn't a woman's issue, this is a social issue that we all have to be aware of and responsive to for us in terms of the bystander program uh, we've had to meet the challenge of pivoting our prevention education to an online context uh, which was quite challenging Uh, and we're still in the process of really initiating that um, campus-wide programming it commences next week Um, But from there, uh, there's also been additional challenges in terms of making sure that our curriculum um, is able to create the collaborative and connective learning community where that that true social transformation can potentially happen uh, in an online learning environment that can be challenging. So, you know, working to make sure that people feel that the learning environment is one that's validating uh, and affirming and still challenging and the unlearning can happen. We also know that prevention education is most effective when our scenarios reflect students' lived experience. So one of the things that makes our workshops very unique is that they're led by student facilitators. Uh, We know that peers are far more receptive to the learning if it's facilitated by someone that they can relate to. And the same is true for the scenarios that we illustrate. So we wanted our scenarios to reflect the current social situation where young people are negotiating intimacy in an online dating environment or perhaps hooking up in more intimate uh, spaces because you can't, you know, go to a club or you can't, um, you know, dating is not, or even going out with a group of friends like, you know, we're, we're at home. So that creates new challenges in terms of negotiating um, intimacy or, or, or. hooking up or or however we want to frame it, uh, negotiating sexual experiences, is is challenging. So there's new parameters around dating and intimacy, new sociality that's being negotiated in online environments. And we know pro-social behavior is really important there too. So that's essentially the ways in which we've we've shifted to think about how uh, our prevention can translate to the online environment and how we give young people the tools to negotiate coercive behavior, for example, that they're experiencing on a dating app. uh, And just to make those scenarios robust so that young people can see the usefulness of those examples to their own lives.
0: That's amazing. And then I know that, um, that we're also still doing support online. Dusty, do you wanna talk like super briefly about how support has shifted to the online realm?
1: Sure. I mean, normally, you know, um, in the past I've met with people in my office, occasionally we've had phone calls, but, you know, most people have come to hang out in my office and we get to know one another in that context, but that is not possible currently. So I've switched over to using Zoom almost exclusively to meet with people, occasionally still having calls as well. Um, You know, I don't think it's like quite like, I don't know, it's not quite the same. I'll be honest. I miss being in my office with people. Um, in part because I try to make my office a really lovely space where we can, you know, have a cup of tea together and just hang out. Um, it's not quite the same online, but it's, but I do think it's worked better than I expected it to. So I'm still able to help sort out what's going on in people's lives. And hopefully the folks that I'm working with feel, um, that, you know, they're in a compassionate space where someone really cares about them and wants to help them. um, yeah, that's, it's not ideal, but we're making it work. And I'm grateful for the folks who have chosen to reach out and, you know, manage to do this online, even though it's not optimal in some ways.
0: Amazing. So I think this is a good place for us to leave off. And in just a minute, I will give you folks all the info about how to get involved in all of these different initiatives if you're interested. But first, just thank you so much, Dusty and Frankie, for taking the time to chat with me today and like being really thoughtful about the topic and kind of laying out the way you think about it for folks because I think it's really interesting.
1: Thanks so much. It was really lovely talking with the two of you. I mean, I know I do it all the time
2: anyway, but it was nice <laughs> to do it in this context. <laughs> Thanks, Anne, for facilitating the discussion.
0: Thanks, folks. So how can you get involved in this work this year? Bystander is still running online workshops currently. And if you're interested in taking that amazing three-hour workshop that you heard about today, you can do that at wwwuwindsorca slash bystander dash first year. So on that website, you can find all of the info about registering for that workshop. You can also follow Bystander on their social media. Their Instagram is at... Bystander underscore U Windsor, and their Facebook is Bystander Initiative. You can also check out all of the public education we're doing through the office by checking out our website, which is slash sexual assault uh, Flip the script is on hold right now, but we are doing a whole bunch of other education through our social media pages. So you can follow us on Instagram at we care at U Windsor, and uh, that is W E C A R E A T U W. And you can also check out our Facebook page, which is Flip the Script You Windsor. So if you want to check out those social media pages, you can definitely find us there and hear all about what we're doing. The other thing is, if you would like some support related to sexual misconduct, sexual assault, any unwanted sexual experience, you can reach out to Dusty. You can reach her at svsupport at uwinsor.ca, or again, check out our website, uwindsorca slash sexual assault, in order to find out about how to book with her and to speak to her and get some support. Thank you so much for joining us for our first episode, and we're really excited to bring some new content to you in the future, so please follow back up with us. Thanks, folks.